Fualcha, 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 Akharja Gale, and welcome to episode 98 of the Rebel Matters podcast. As usual, I am your host, Anna O'Carlan, and this week's guest on the show is Professor Mazin Quimsia, the founder of the Palestine Museum of Natural History and also the Palestine Institute for Biodiversity and Sustainability at Bethlehem University. Among Professor Quimsia's books is one called Popular Resistance in Palestine, A History of Hope and Empowerment, has written over 140 scientific papers on topics ranging from cultural heritage to biodiversity to cancer. I met Mazin very briefly in March of 2018, the first time that I visited Palestine and we called into the Museum of Natural History and had a quick chat with him and ever since then I've been receiving his regular email updates and blogs which have been really, really informative about various aspects of life in Palestine and other international issues as well. I've added Mazin's website address into the description for the show and if you go to it and send him an email, he can put you on to that email list as well. We had an episode coming out last week, so technically speaking, the next episode of the podcast shouldn't be coming out until next week, but on account of... What's happening in Palestine at the minute, I wanted to get this out there as soon as possible so that you can hear Mazen talking and learn more about what's happening in Palestine and what life is like in Palestine. As I'm recording this, I'm looking at the Al Jazeera homepage and the main story is running that the Israeli army are massing forces and arms on the border with Gaza They've been hitting Gaza with air raids for the last three days and as it stands there are 87 dead including 18 children. Israel has intensified its attack on Palestine on the back of the forced evictions that are happening in the village of Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem and also the incursions that the Israeli army have made into the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem during Ramadan. The internet is currently awash with videos of what's happening in Gaza, Jerusalem and other parts of Palestine as well right now. And there's never been a more important time to learn about what's happening there and also to take stock of our responsibility to put pressure on our politicians and our government to take real action to let Israel know that this is completely unacceptable. One of the most effective ways that we can join in struggle with our brothers and sisters in Palestine is to boycott Israeli goods and services and there are many things that are being sold in area shops that have come from Israel or from illegal settlements. So double check where your groceries and your goods are coming from and if they're marked as coming from Israel then don't buy them. You can also get a more comprehensive list of companies and products that are on the BDS list on the Irish Palestine Solidarity Campaign's website, ipsc.ie. Before we get stuck into the chat with Mazen, I just want to say a massive thank you to all of our supporters over on patreon.com forward slash rebel matters who are absolutely keeping the Rebel Matters show on the road. There are five tiers of support over on Patreon for the Rebel Matters podcast, which are all named after our favourite Irish trees. So if you would like to become a patron and a supporter of the show, then you can head over there to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters and have a look at the different tiers of support and 
the corresponding gestures of gratitude that we've set up to say thank you for becoming a supporter of the show. The Rebel Matters podcast is completely funded by our patrons and we wouldn't still be here doing this podcast if it wasn't for our supporters. So, Gura Ked, 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 Milamaya Govakarja. Let's get stuck into episode 98 with Professor Mazen Kwamsea. Buenigi Sultas. What are things like there at the minute? So far, over 85 Palestinians have been killed. Uh, 18 of them are children in relentless bombing in Gaza that already demolished uh, hundreds of homes and residential buildings and targeted cars and schools and so forth. Um, This is the latest of what's happening in the last three days. Uh, Basically, those 18 children were killed. And then there's lynch mobs that are running around uh, joint uh, Palestinian uh, Jewish uh, communities inside the Green Line. And they're attacking homes, uh, marking homes, sort of like Kristallnacht uh, during the German uh, Nazi era. they're going around dragging people out of their cars, beating them. Uh, uh, anybody who even looks Arab is uh, is targeted. Um, you know, even a Jordanian guy who was working in a factory that's at the border was attacked by racist uh, thugs, basically. Uh, the right wing has been given a green line in Israel by the government to basically attack anything um, and anybody who's associated with Palestine, Palestinians. But we have been suffering from this for the past uh, seven or eight decades as Palestinians. As you know, there are 13 million Palestinians in the world Seven and a half million of us are refugees or displaced people. And uh, the massacres and the killing of Palestinians have been ongoing uh, for a long, long time. But it seems this last stage is uh, particularly uh, shocking to everybody, including the Israelis, by the way, who are realizing that their illusion of having a country uh, that's normal is being shattered by the events. So this in brief what's happening. From looking at the, the international media and the story that's coming out of Palestine at the minute, it seems like the recent escalation and violence by Israel has sort of everything has culminated because of what was happening in Sheikh Jarrah and at the Al Aqsa Mosque and also um to is that is that the case or is there other things at play here 
Well, I mean, the mainstream media in the Western countries are largely manipulated and they tell a small side of the story. But in the past uh, few days, um, you know, events have been getting out of hand and it's hard to ignore what is going on. So some Western media, including, uh, for example, some British uh, media started covering uh, some of this uh, a bit of what's really going on. But there's still some bias in BBC, for example, or in uh, uh, CNN or other uh, Western media, or uh, obviously in Murdoch's uh, Fox Empire uh, media is uh, still very biased. Uh, there's, thank God, there's some social media and others where truth is not uh, possible to hide because people do post and occasionally uh, Facebook will block us, but, uh, but more and more people are posting and it's very hard to ignore clear videos of targeting of civilian areas and things like that. One thing that I have noticed recently is that people are starting to become more aware of the language that's being used to describe what's happening in Palestine and starting to replace uh, terminology such as clashes or Arab-Israeli clashes and then starting to use yeah. the term apartheid a little bit more than what I've noticed in the past when there has been a flare-up of the trouble. Yes, I think there is a slight change and we hope it will accelerate and uh, it's important because if we are going to have peace here, that's the only way we can do it is if we have truth, if we speak truth to power, so to speak. And peace here is very critical uh, for peace around the world. Uh, you know, if we had peace here, we wouldn't have had the wars in Yemen, in Syria, in Iraq, and other places that are all. Um, you know, instigated to protect Israel's hegemony in the Middle East. The email that you sent out this morning or yesterday, I can't remember when it, when it came out, the, it kind of had an opening paragraph in it about the um, having both resistance to evil and also building a better future for the children. And it seems like Palestine is kind of in a period right now, at this very moment of having to resist what's happening. And um, I'm kind of where where is the situation there? Do, do what what methods of resistance have the Palestinians have at their disposal at the minute? I mean, the reason I wrote this, by the way, this morning about this issue, trying to inject some rationality, is because what I see happening usually in these events when there's so much attack on the native people. The young people react and they react very strongly and they go out in the street and they sacrifice, but they don't have a structure, an organization or structure that will protect them and that will ensure that the outcome of what they do is feeding into uh, a decent future uh, and not just merely reactionary driven by testosterone or hormones or whatever. Uh, so that's why I wrote that, uh, perhaps because I'm a bit older and wiser. But I, rem and I, rem but I remember what I used to be in my 20s. Uh, 
you know, very, uh, very active and very uh, outspoken and, and didn't care about my life and uh, so forth. I think we need to have a balance and we need to have, as I said, you know, there's a Chinese saying, better light a candle than curse the darkness. We need to light candles. We need to create. Uh, you can never win over darkness, so to speak. You can only light your candle. And we have, we have to each work on this. We each have to think about how we can uh, best uh, project a positive thing and do it. Uh, this is this is what I was aiming for from that uh, letter. Does it become more difficult to try? And imagine how you can light candles at times like this. You know, it's it's a it's a struggle that you have to do, uh, not even day by day, but minute by minute you have to do it. I mean, when an Israeli soldier uh, pressed his knee on my neck and and my soul, my uh, shoulder and my ribs and cracked my rib, it is hard for one not to hate or not to uh, react in a very, uh, you know, vengeful way or think of vengeful way. You have to just work on it. You have to decide that hate is not helpful. What is helpful, you still have to resist evil. That's, I am very adamant about that. I mean, Jesus also turned the tables on the money changers in the temple, and he called the evildoers, you know, hypocrites and sons of snakes and devils, etc. So I think we, if we follow Jesus's example, we still have to challenge the evil. But as Jesus said, also love your enemies. What does that mean? It doesn't mean you love what they do to you. It means you challenge it. But at the same time, you leave yourself um, with the, I don't know how to describe it, but um, uh, guard your own heart from becoming calcified or hateful or vengeful because eventually that only harms you and harms your cause. And it's important to remain rational and objective as much as re reasonably possible under horrific circumstances. When I see, you know, a video of a father uh, hugging his only remaining son after he lost three other children, uh, in the Israeli bombing, and uh, you know, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see those images. Uh, but we have to put things in context. That what what are we trying to achieve? And what we are trying to achieve as Palestinians, there are 13 million of us. Seven and a half million, as I mentioned, are refugees or displaced people. What are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve justice, human rights, the rights of refugees to return, and for Palestine to return as it was before, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious society, not a society dominated by hate or violence or controlled by one group or another. I mean, my family is Christian. There are Muslims here. There are also Jewish people here, and, and we need to respect this multi-religious, multicultural society that existed for hundreds of years, thousands of years, actually, until Zionism came about, which is like Nazism was a, 
an ideology steeped in racism and exceptionalism and the idea that we have to have a Jewish state, so to speak, purify the country uh, from non-Jews, etc. This is what we have to work for, and I think we work for it. The majority of us work for it in rational, objective ways, and we have to make sure that uh, that we spread this message and spread the knowledge and and uh, and explain to everybody, Europeans, Americans, uh, Australians, uh, Chinese, whoever, why this is important for the world and the peace of the world. I heard you speaking before about the the history of colonization in the world in general and the different countries that had colonization all had one of three outcomes, a mass exodus at yeah. the end of the day by the colonizer or uh a uh, uh, genocide of the native people or end up living together in a country. Mm-hmm. And yeah. do you still see yeah. that there's a, a path there for, right. for Palestine for that to achieve that? I think that's why it's important to recognize the uh, so-called underlying etiology of the problem, which is settler colonialism, because then you can again look at history of humanity and you offer uh, rational uh, scenarios for what happens and what's the future of this, uh, you know, and, and that's where you, uh, un, you know, the descendants of colonizers and colonized are living together, for example, in Latin America and Brazil and Argentina and Chile and Mexico and North America and Canada and uh, in Caribbean islands, Southeast Asia, and most recently in South Africa. Uh, it's rational to expect, and since this is the most common outcome of colonial, anti-colonial struggles, that this is what will happen here. I mean, I'm, I don't claim that this is a perfect solution, but it is certainly the most common solution is for people to coexist in that country who want to coexist after after they shed the colonial mentality. And if they shed the colonial mentality, then they are welcome to coexist and, and will survive in that uh, society and maybe intermarry and after a few generations, they will uh, try to forget this painful past uh, this again, you know, is the rational thing, not a kumbaya kind of a peace, but certainly uh, the most or most rational and and least violent of the outcomes. I mean, we don't want genocide like happened in the U.S. or Australia against Aborigines, and we certainly don't want. Uh, You know, the situation like happened in Algeria where one million French packed their bags and went to France. Uh, Some of them never seen France in their lives, but their ancestors came from France. Um, This this is what we, we, and of course it was also genocide because two to three million Algerians were killed in that struggle for freedom. Um, so I think, you know, one looks at these histories, as, as a scientist, I look at it in terms of objective history of what had happened, what transpired, and what might happen. 
um, and say sometimes people just spend so much blood and toil and money and so forth on something that uh, clearly has no future, like an apartheid system, whether in South Africa or in Israel or in the case of the U.S., for example, Jim Crow laws, how many people suffered, how many blacks were lynched in the south of the U.S., um, how many of them could have been saved if the end of a regime of oppression and injustice was ended uh, sooner? We could have saved thousands of lives, whether in the southern U.S. Uh, or in South Africa or in other countries, certainly here too. To a large extent, the downfall of South African apartheid came when the South African apartheid system was re rejected by the international community and there was a large-scale boycott on South Africa b before the fall of apartheid. And Israel has a lot of allies that are propping them up and supporting them, and especially coming from America, like a, a lot of funding. Um, so how do you, I suppose that has to be dismantled first before Israel can stop the kind of colonial mindset? Well, yes, but I am actually old enough to remember uh, the era before South African apartheid ended. And actually, my first activism in 1980 was not for Palestine, it was for South Africa. Uh, when I brought the speaker uh, to speak about South African apartheid to my university in the US at the time I was doing a master's degree. Um, no, actually, I mean, I would want to correct you that the whole world was not against apartheid in South Africa. Every single Western government was for apartheid in South Africa. Every single Western government, and I challenge you to prove me wrong. Uh, they actually stopped supporting apartheid when it was clear that it has ended or in the way to end, as like in the last few days of apartheid. The people is another story. The people of Western countries saw this as racism and discrimination. Their government supported them. I mean, I was in the US, for example, 1980, 1979 to 1989 when apartheid ended. In those 10 years, I mean, I saw, I saw the, the government clearly supporting apartheid. People like Ronald Reagan, who said, you know, Nelson Mandela should rot in jail because he is a terrorist. And the country of South Africa is our ally and it's holding up the communist domino effect and all that stuff. And these, these guys are terrorists, communists, whatever, socialists. This, this was the language they used. And, um, and the BDS movement, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, was a movement of people was initiated in South Africa, and the same thing happened to us. The BDS movement was started in Palestine in the 1990s, accelerated in 2005 with the call by the civil society organizations here to the international community to engage with boycott divestment sanctions in the same way they engaged with South Africa. This movement actually surprised even uh, some of its founders, like I was one of its uh, founders in 2005, if you want. Uh, it surprised us in how fast it has grown and accelerated in the past 15, 16 years. 
So I think uh, there is quite a bit of uh, movement among the people. And eventually governments will catch, but you know, the politicians, they stick their finger in the air and they test where the wind is coming from. And if they get a lot of pressure, they'll do what's right. If they don't get pressure, they won't do what's right. They uh, want to stay in office, so they, they want to play it safe, so to speak. So I am optimistic that politics will change and it's already starting to, I mean, I take note of the fact that at least some members of the US Congress are starting to speak out for Palestinian rights and are not afraid to be called anti-Semites and all the other bullshit that Zionists try to use against people who speak for human rights. Um, I see politicians even in the UK, like Jeremy Corbyn, okay, he was um, kicked out because of the Zionist lobby in uh, the UK. But uh, but we saw, we saw that people are starting to speak out, starting to challenge the Zionist lobbies in the West and including in the mainstream media even. Uh, and when you have somebody like Trevor Noah, who's on the Daily Show, come out and speak for Palestine or famous Hollywood uh, uh, actors and actresses like uh, Sarah Sarandon and others speak out, you know, um, that's, that's giving us optimism and hope. Uh, minority as they are, there's still hope. In Ireland, the, some of the main politicians have come out and I suppose they have in a way condemned the Israel, Israel's actions over the, the course of the last week, but they have also sort of balanced it up by trying to say, well, both sides need to pull back and things like this, which kind of devalues the condemnation in many ways. And like we still have the Israeli ambassador the, to Ireland is still in place here and it doesn't seem like there's any valid reason why he should still be welcome in Ireland but, but there still seems on a political level to be a resistance to speak out against Israel and in many ways it can kind of be hard sometimes for people to see why that why is that still there like why why do we still have diplomatic relations with Israel when they're clearly carrying out war crimes in Palestine and why do we still have economic relationships relations with them when a lot of the businesses and supermarkets in Ireland still stock goods that are produced in illegal settlements? Yeah, I mean this is a, this is an issue, and I think it's very important for people to to be educated about what's going on here. Um, yeah, I saw some politicians are becoming. Like instead of saying Israel is always right, as they used to, now are saying, well, there's problems on both sides, as if this is somehow exonerates them or something like that. Uh, sorry, there's no problems on both sides. There's no two sides here. It is not, uh, you know, when you see a man raping a woman, you don't say, well, they both have points of views. Uh, or they both are guilty of something because a woman is trying to scratch the face of the man that uh, there is assaulting her. That, that is uh, so out of bound of logic. You know, when you have an oppressor and an oppressed, Israel is the fourth strongest army in the world. It has nuclear 
submarines that carry hundreds of nuclear weapons that are nuclear powered even submarines given to it by Germany. It has the arsenal with F-35 supported by the US taxpayer money to the tune of $4 billion every year. And what do Palestinians have? You know, <laughs> homemade rockets at best. That's the best that they could come up with. Uh, you know, what, what is this? To, to claim some sort of equality of morality when you have seven and a half million Palestinian refugees, uh, when you have Jews are being brought from around the world to settle on stolen Palestinian land with their army's protection. You call this some sort of, you know, two sides. There's no two sides here. There's, an, you know, the, there's basically apartheid. And apartheid, like in South Africa, was not the struggle between whites and blacks with each one of them committing, quote unquote, atrocities. The atrocities were there, that's understandable. And it's uh, it's part of the, and parcel of colonization. You cannot do colonization nicely. You know, I cannot come to your house and land and whatever, in Ireland or whatever, and say, hey, you know, get out, uh, please. I want to take over your house. You have to do it violently if you want to do it. So violence is intrinsic to colonization. And once you do it, of course, some of the native people resist. And most of the resistance is nonviolent, civil resistance, other refusal to obey orders. And occasionally it can be armed resistance, as in South Africa under apartheid, as in Native Americans when the European Spaniards and British came to North America, as in any other colonized country in South America, Latin America, Asia, any other country, there is occasional resistance. This is reality. This is how to describe what is there, not what the colonizers say. Of course, if we regurgitate what the colonizers say, we know what they will say. Uh, you know, in North America, they used to say, well, circling the wagons to protect ourselves from these savages that are attacking us. Uh, and we don't care to know why they're attacking us. Maybe it's because of language difference or religious difference or whatever. Uh, this is how they uh, they would frame it, and it's understandable they would frame it like this. But we should never accept such uh, framing, and we should challenge it. We should challenge it strongly, and we should say, you know, international law is on our side. International law is on the side of human rights. And it says you cannot do this. You cannot kill people. You cannot remove them from their homes as happening in Sheikh Jarrah or many other, Sheikh Jarrah actually, and Silwan are the only two neighborhoods left. Most of the suburbs of Jerusalem have been ethnically cleansed of Palestinians. West Jerusalem completely ethnically, West Jerusalem used to be all Palestinian. It was completely ethnically cleansed of Palestinians in 1948. And then 1967, Israel occupied East Jerusalem and started to take neighborhood by neighborhood. You can see videos of them saying this and admitting, you know, settlers saying, oh, we took this neighborhood, now we're going to take the next one and the next one until there's no more Arabs here. This, this is the language they use, and this is the language of colonialism. 
and uh, we should not let them get away with it by by accepting somehow moral equivalency between a colonizer and a colonized people. Do you think that the European and Western governments are putting their own economic interests with Israel and with the US above their moral duty to stand up against what's happening in Palestine? Well, I wish the U.S. taxpayers, for example, understand what their economic interests are. Is their economic interest uh, to give uh, the state of Israel, this tiny state in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, to give it more money than they give to sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America combined? Is that in the interest of the American public? What is the American public getting out of it? It's getting uh, broke, basically. Now there's $23 trillion in debt for the U.S. taxpayers, government debt. And this government debt, um, at least 40% of it, is directly attributable to the power of the Zionist lobby pushing the U.S. to engage in endless wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Somalia uh, that is bankrupting the American public. It is not even in the interest of oil corporations or things like that, as some of my left-leaning friends in the U.S. say, we fought the war in Iraq for oil. Sorry, we didn't fight it for war. The U.S. taxpayers fought or, or allowed their money to be used to, to fund the war, that's to benefit the state of Israel, or at least they thought it would benefit the state of Israel. It's not to benefit even oil companies. Oil companies in the U.S. were against the war. They wanted the U.S. to lift the sanctions on Iraq so that they can bid on the oil like other countries. Anyway, after the war, after the U.S. destroyed the government of Iraq, what happened? The oil of Iraq is actually now being uh, uh, developed by Chinese companies, Russian companies, other companies, not by American companies. So it was not a war for oil. It was a war fought because they thought was good for Israel. It didn't work out that way for them because they removed Saddam Hussein, who was an impediment to Iran, and Iran got stronger as a result of the war, not weaker. Uh, and so, so that's why then they went to Syria and Yemen and other places. But every time they attack these countries like Iran or Syria or Lebanon or Yemen, the axis of resistance grows in the Middle East, in the Arab world, against imperial and Zionist uh, agendas, if you want. That's connected to what you were saying earlier about how the people having to understand and speak up to their government so that the government start to pay attention to what the people are saying so that they can have a knock-on impact on what they're doing in overseas. I heard you talking about the Museum of Natural History. I was listening to a piece that you did on another podcast earlier on there, and you described it as a kind of oasis or a haven for people to come to and spend time in. That's definitely what it felt like in the very short period that I spent there back in 2018. Was that one of the, the motivations for setting up yeah. the Museum for Natural History? Yes, we have a botanical garden here of about uh, 
you know, four acres and we have a couple of buildings and uh, plastic houses where we grow some vegetables, also community garden and playground for children to provide safety for the people of children. We have to remember that uh, some 55% of Palestinians in our area here are children. Uh, under age of 18, basically. And we have to serve this community. We have to, as I said in the beginning of the show, that we have to light a candle instead of cursing the darkness, as the Chinese saying goes. Uh, so lighting a candle, creating this oasis here, the Palestine Institute, it's called for biodiversity and sustainability. We want sustainable human communities and sustainable natural communities. And this is important for us uh, because it keeps also the hope of the future. Uh, we don't, you know, as optimistic people, we don't believe like the Zionists try to portray that in the West, they try to make sure that people in the West don't interfere by telling them, ah, just leave us alone, this has been, or keep sending us weapons, because the Middle East is always like that, we, you know, it's complicated, the way the term they use, complicated, uh, you know, we're, we're going to have always conflict here, we're always going to be at war, so, so leave us alone. Uh, no, I, we are optimistic, we it's not true, the Middle East actually has been one of the most peaceful areas of the world. Uh, I know this is shocking to your audience because they are conditioned by the Western media to think of this as, and it is true that in the past few years we have had conflict here. But when you add the number of years of conflict, for example, take this conflict, you call it whatever, 100 years or since 1948, that's still, you know, say 100 years. What was the conflict before this here in the Middle East? In Europe, of course, you had First World War and Second World War and, and the Crimean War and all these things. But here, you'd have to go back to the time of the Crusaders, actually, to 1100 to find the next conflict, which also lasted about 100 years. And then you'd have to go back another few hundred years before to find another conflict. When you add up the numbers of conflicts and the total years spent in conflict as a percentage of our very long history here, thousands of years, you find it to be as a percentage, one of the smallest in the world, certainly smaller than uh, England, for example, <laughs> or France or any other country in Europe. Um, or the U.S. for that matter, you know, since the Europeans came to the U.S. 300 years, you know, they've been involved in so many conflicts and wars. So we've been very peaceful, and this country will go back to being peaceful. If we accept this, as I do, that's an optimistic point of view, then we need to prepare for it. We need to prepare for it by protecting our environment, by growing our own food, by having aquaponics, aquaculture, and community garden, all these things, by protecting the birds and the flowers and species around us. One of the richest biodiversity areas in the Mediterranean is here, actually. We have more floral species, more plant species in, the, in Palestine 
which you can fit it in, in the county where you are. Uh, we have more species here of plants than in the whole of England, you know? Uh, so, so we have rich uh, plants and animals and people, and we will go back to coexisting in harmony with nature if we put our act together. So, and we cannot wait till the end of the conflict to do this. That's why what we are doing has to be done in parallel. On one hand, we resist evil and oppression. On the other hand, we really have to build and we have to protect our environment and grow our own food, uh, have bees. And unfortunately, my bees are being impacted by the tear gas that's drifting down to the garden from the daily attack by the Israeli soldiers in the checkpoint near our place here, about a kilometer away, but they use such a density of tear gas as drifts down. Uh, over the last couple of years, a few of us over here have been involved in helping our friends at the Ida refugee camp to open a small community gym in the Laji Centre there. And in preparation for it, we were raising some money and going around to try and raise awareness uh, in Ireland before we went over. So I was talking to journalists here and there, and it was actually a question that I was never really prepared for fully because I didn't think that anybody would ever ask it, but I got asked it quite often. They were saying, why are you going over there and raising all this money for a gym? Do the Palestinians not need other things like medical supplies? And like, think, I guess it, the question was coming from a place of, the, the majority of the experience that people have in the media of Palestinians and Palestine in general is all of the bad things, all of the, like what's happening on, on the news today. And to hear you talk about the, the future and lighting the candle in the dark and um, creating those kind of safe spaces uh, as a balance to all of the, the conflict that's going on and all of the kind of standing up against the oppression. I think that, um, that probably is as good an answer as uh, as anybody could give to that question. You mentioned about the tear gas, sir, which kind of brings me on to the next question I was going to ask you. How has the, in general, how has the occupation impacted the environment in Palestine? Well, the environment, uh, environmental injustice to begin with is part and parcel of colonial uh, occupation, colonial settlement activities. Uh, settler colonialists always damage the native environment. I don't want the local environment or the local people to stay in the same relationship. Indigenous people are always under assault, so is their livelihood and their relationship to nature. Uh, that's why we have to remember, for example, that uh, the European colonizers killed uh, some two million buffaloes in the United, in what became the United States. Now, why did they kill the buffaloes? It was not because they hated buffaloes or religious conviction or anything. It was because buffaloes were the livelihood of the native people. And by killing the buffaloes, they wanted to starve and decimate the native population, the indigenous people. This is a part and parcel to have environmental injustice. And we have environmental injustice here, and I wrote chapters and books about it, articles in scientific journals, 
that's it that I'm happy to send you guys uh, if you want to read more about it. There are a lot of aspects of this. If there is the agenda of the colonizers, what is the agenda of the colonized people? The agenda of the colonized people as the agenda of the Native Americans was to protect their buffaloes and protect their environment. This is why I think uh, also the, the indigenous people have a lot of wisdom for conservationists. Some Europeans, uh, conservationists who go to Africa or some developing country and try to lecture the people in that country about how they should conserve their environment. Uh, and I think that's the wrong approach. Many good conservationists, they go to a country like Brazil and they go among the natives in the Amazon and they ask them, they, they uh, support them in conserving their environment, but they ask their wisdom. They learn from them, they learn from indigenous people. And we have to learn from the indigenous people everywhere. Palestine, we have to remember, is part of the Fertile Crescent where humans first de developed agriculture. We have the oldest continuously inhabited town on earth, which is Jericho, 12,000 years. Continuously inhabited means that they took care of their environment for 12,000 years. So we need to listen to them and we need to look at how they did it as Palestinian natives, uh, indigenous people, how they did it and learn from, from them. And I think that's, uh, that's why I say it's important to, uh, you know, every negative things, the darkness is challenged by the positive things, which is the light. Uh, the darkness of environmental injustice by the colonizers is challenged by the environmental justice and the conserving of our own environment as Palestinians uh, who, whose ancestors, I mean, my ancestors here are Canaanites. They're the ones who first invented agriculture, first domesticated animals and plants in this fertile crescent. The movement for environmental change and for climate justice has arguably never been stronger than it is now because of the fact that we're facing a, a very drastic change in our weather and mm -hmm. uh, that the the world really needs our help right now from uh, or needs us to, <laughs> to stop polluting it so much. But mm -hmm. I think what you're saying there really makes it very clear that environmentalism and climate activism can't be just isolated to the country that we're in. And, you know, there's, there's something about the environmental movement that I think it can seem like it's quite like a limited to where, to your immediate environment. And that what you're saying there is making it really clear that we need to broaden the, the scope of the environmental movement and not be afraid to, kind of step in there and like speak up for Palestine and the damage that's being done to the environment there, even though it's being caused by, as you were saying there, the occupation, the ongoing occupation, which is a different reason why we might be destroying the environment here in Ireland. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think most people are starting to see the connections between uh, human rights, political justice issues, environmental justice issues, all of this. The reason that these things are connected is very simple. We share this one blue planet, so to speak. There's no uh, borders from space and there's no borders for environmental pollution. And if they drop a nuclear bomb, it does not respect that it will reach a border and, and the radiation will stop. So people are seeing that all of these things are connected. Climate change affects everybody. Actually, unfortunately, affects developing countries more than Europe and North America, which are producing more of, of the climate change gases than, uh, than us. But anyways, it certainly impacts the whole globe. The second point that I want to explain why these things are connected is because the enemy is one and the same. The enemy that being what? Being the greed of the few who are profiting from wars, from pumping uh, greenhouse gases in the air, uh, the oil fuel industry, military industry. Military industry, by the way, is one of the largest contributor to global greenhouse emissions. People don't talk about that. But the US military, for example, actually contributes something like 20% of the greenhouse emissions from the US. Uh, so th this is the reality that we have to face is that the military industrial complex that's being to profit a few elite people, people like uh, Donald Trump or Netanyahu in, uh, here in Palestine, or Bill, Mo whatever his name, Moda in India, who's committing genocide, you know, his people. Uh, he doesn't care about Indian people, you know. <laughs> he cares about money and resources. These people are the club that faces us. Uh, and they're friends with each other, Modi and Netanyahu and Tony Blair and uh, Donald Trump are buddies, you know. Uh, these are our enemies. They are the enemies of humanity. And that's why we have to challenge them. That's why environmental justice issues, human rights justice issues, etc., are all connected and are connected globally. That's why I like the terminology of joint struggle rather than solidarity, because solidarity with somebody else implies you're like disconnected, but it's really the whole struggles are connected, whether here or in Ireland or South Africa or India or Brazil, you know, against Bolsonaro who wants to burn the Amazon to make more cow pastures there. I mean. To me, this is the logic that uh, needs to be challenged and uh, based on truth and joint struggle. Palestine has become uh, into more people's consciousness over the last week because of the, the events that have, that have happened. How would you like people who might be listening to this to join in struggle with with Palestine right now? 
Yeah, I mean, Palestine has become a, an important global issue uh, in the same way that South Africa under apartheid was a global issue. The reason for that is that both in South Africa under apartheid and Palestine under Israeli apartheid show the hypocrisy of Western governments who on the one hand say we support human rights and international law, but on the other hand, they support apartheid, apartheid regimes that oppress their people. And the US, for example, would not dare say anything about Saudi Arabia, for example, which is genocidal uh, regime in Saudi Arabia. Um, so yes, they have become uh, a linchpin for uh, hum human activism, if you want. Uh, because they are the Achilles heel of Western hypocrisy. Uh, now, what can people do? Well, uh, people are doing, first of all, we have to recognize and we really appreciate all the people that mobilize for human rights, for environmental justice, for climate change, for all these things that you and I care about. Um, I think that's, that there are millions and millions of people mobilizing and doing all sorts of things. Uh, of course, you know, we only know a glimpse of a few things that happen. So I'm sure in every neighborhood in New York and everywhere else, you will find people who are doing great things and we encourage them and we ask you to meet with them and uh, the audience, I mean, to meet with them and see what they're doing and, and how, you can think of other things to do. Uh, there are many things that can be done and it's not one way to struggle. There are millions of ways to struggle, literally. Uh, I even have uh, listed in my own book, uh, sharing, uh, I mean, popular resistance in Palestine. I listed over uh, 250 ways of uh, resistance from everything boycott, divestment, sanctions, to uh, media work, to uh, lobbying politicians, to direct support, humanitarian aid, to, uh, you know, to speaking to your neighbor, etc. And uh, I think there are many ways that people can be involved. If they want to, they can write to me and uh, you can share my email if you want with the, with the audience. Uh, it's, uh, my website is kumsiya.org, my last name .org, Q-U-M-S-I-Y-E-H.org. Uh, you know, people, once uh, airlines are resumed functioning, uh, we would welcome volunteers to come here. We provide room and board for volunteers, provides a good cultural experience. So uh, we have good food here. <laughs> So people are welcome. We try to live, you know, we're not here just worrying about the politics all the time. We do live, we have uh, nice flowers, nice food, nice music. Uh, we do have parties occasionally, so people will enjoy it. This episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was presented by me, Anne Carlan, and produced by Vicky Langan. The Rebel Matters podcast is 100% funded by our followers over on Patreon, and we are very grateful for that support. If you'd like to become a patron, then you can find us on www 
patreon.com forward slash rebel matters where you can see the various tiers of support that you can choose from every single bit of support that we get here at the rebel matters podcast means a lot to us and really does help to keep the show on the road anyway that's all for me this week so good you and katerella akarja slan gafoil august kenny fiore